Accused murderer Jamie Bacon makes a plea deal. The Crown and the defense have come to an agreement as to what an appropriate disposition is. What it means for the victims of the Surrey 6 killing. Backlash against ICBC's drive for no-fault insurance. Currently as designed, no-fault is going to further limit your choices. Why some say a hybrid model would work a lot better for BC drivers. And the wild ride is over for a dad who let his kids take the bus. So I think it's discouraging to realize that it still took three years. How his long legal battle ended. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. 13 years after the Surrey 6 murders, one of the alleged killers is going to plead guilty. A lawyer for Jamie Bacon, one of the founders of the Red Scorpions gang, says a plea deal has been reached. Rumi Nadea reports. The victim's family, always the last to know. This man has spinned us on his little finger for 13 years. Eileen Mohan was headed out for a run Tuesday morning when a media Google alert flashed on her phone. The news, Jamie Bacon struck a deal. And all of a sudden, you know, today he thinks he's given us some justice by pleading guilty. It has been very difficult to accept everything. Bacon's lawyer has confirmed his client is expected to plead guilty Thursday in connection to the 2007 Surrey 6 slaughter in a high-rise building, the worst gangland slaying in BC's history. In relation to the Surrey 6 allegations, he will plead guilty to a conspiracy to commit the murder of Corey Lau. Bacon's drug rival Corey Lau plus three associates were killed. Two innocent bystanders also shot execution style. Ed Schellenberg was fixing a fireplace in Unit 1505. Across the hall, Mohan's 22-year-old son Christopher was leaving home en route to play basketball. You know, you just can't walk to the doorsteps of my home and steal my son's life and expect to walk free on the streets. But what will justice look like in terms of a sentence? Bacon was also charged with first-degree murder in the case, but it looks like that charge will be tossed as a result of the plea deal. Until that plea is entered, until the end of a sentencing, um, it's still on the books for now. Um, the expectation is that the Crown will stay that charge at the close of a sentencing hearing. Bacon's lawyer tells us his client also intends to plead guilty to one count of counseling to commit murder in a separate case from 2008, which Bacon is currently on trial for. This is in connection to an attempted hit on Bacon's former associate, Dennis Karbovnik. While others have been sentenced for their role in the Surrey 6 massacre, Mohan has been waiting 13 years for Bacon's trial. Well, I was looking forward to my day in court, and I'm not in agreement about what has happened, but I have to shut up and take it. All right, Ramina Dea joins us live now with more on this. Ramina, given that Bacon has already spent so many years in prison, what could his sentence look like? It's a good question, Sophie. He's been in prison now since 2009, so 11 years. So is he going to receive any significant jail time as a result of this plea deal? 
Crown and defense have come to an agreement as far as what sentencing is going to look like, but they are not sharing those details at this time. So we're going to have to wait until this hits court on Thursday. Back to you. All right, we'll see what happens then. Rumina Dea reporting live. Vancouver's homicide count for 2020 is now at seven after a suspected double murder overnight, and police are asking for help in finding a vehicle of interest. Police were called just after midnight to a home in East Vancouver where they found the two victims. Catherine Urquhart reports. They check in and around bushes, inspect storm drains and parkades. More than a dozen members of the Vancouver Police Department conducting an extensive grid search near East 11th and Commercial Drive scene of a double homicide. VPD officers were called shortly before 12.30 this morning for reports of two males who had been shot inside of a local residence. BC Ambulance Service attended with Vancouver Police and confirmed that both males were deceased. The bodies were discovered inside this house where a forensics team is poring over the scene. Investigators believe the victims were targeted but they aren't revealing any information about who they are. Or if they're known to police. A little bit shocking to wake up to and see that on the news. Roommate said he heard some screaming last night, but we're not sure if that was related. Very safe neighborhood, really. So far, no one has been arrested, but police have identified a vehicle of interest. An older model, grey 2005 Dodge Caravan minivan, with BC plate number 175LXR. If you see it, stay back and call 911. If anybody has any surveillance video of their houses in the area, any dash cam footage from vehicles in the area around 12.30 this morning or shortly before, contact our homicide unit or Crime Stoppers anonymously. The killings are Vancouver's sixth and seventh homicides of the year. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Vancouver police are sounding an alarm about a dramatic increase in replica guns on city streets. The VPD says in the first six months of this year, they have seen a 107% increase in the number of replica guns compared to two years ago. Most of the seizures have been on the downtown east side and in Yaletown, and the majority are from people with criminal records. The replica guns are legal to buy and sell, but not when they're used for illegal purposes. You can't carry it as a concealed weapon. You can't hide it in your waistband and carry it. Um, Keeping in mind a weapon uh, definition is anything that is meant to intimidate um, per the criminal code. Vancouver police say they don't know why there has been such an increase, but say they are working with government to further limit the places where it is legal to possess a replica gun. Water levels have fallen in the community of Cache Creek, but tension is still high as residents evacuated from their homes nervously watch the forecast. Global's John Waugh is live in Cache Creek for us tonight with some of their stories. John. Yeah, that's right, Chris. We spoke to some of those evacuees who have been living under the constant threat of flooding and evacuations for the past three to four years. But I can tell you, watching their faces as the rain started to fall today, as it is right now, It shows it doesn't get any easier. Looking down along the raging riverbank and up in the ominous sky, flood evacuees in Cache Creek say it feels like drowning in hopelessness. You get to the point where it doesn't matter anymore because you feel like 
everything's against you. While the water levels of both the Bonaparte River and Cache Creek have dropped slightly, the first sign of precipitation was like a punch to the gut. When you see the, the rain clouds and the storm fronts that are moving in, the last time this happened, the river rose two feet in 24 hours. As the water continues to eat away at the ground beneath a dozen properties on evacuation order, being forced to live out of a duffel bag is tragically becoming a regular part of Charlene Gordon's life. Just grabbing whatever clothes and necessities needed and hopefully you didn't forget anything. Her pets are also feeling the stress from the possibility of being homeless. They were feeling the anxiety too. They hear the river, they know that the ground's moving and they know that they have to leave. And it's not just water spilling over the riverbanks, which is a concern here in Cache Creek. It's also the groundwater, which has forced the village to shut down one of its two wells, leaving residents with stage four water restrictions, which means limiting its use to drinking, food preparation, and personal hygiene. When the water gets this high, we always worry that it's going to infiltrate the, uh, the well and cause contamination. With increased flooding in the region over the past three to four years, this community along the water is desperate for a lifeline, whether it's shoring up the riverbanks or buying out at-risk property. The only possibility that I can see personally right now is to remove all of the buildings along the waterways. That's half the town. Without help, residents and evacuees say it's hard not to let that sense of hopelessness sweep over them. Now the village of Cash Creek is in constant communication with Environment Canada and the BC River Forecast Centre, but what it's starting to do today is set up an early warning system by communicating with communities further up north, like Loon Lake and High Hume Lake. And by having those communities inform them when their river levels are rising, it gives them about a four to six hour window before that water reaches here. Chris? All right, John. Thank you. All right, let's take a closer look at that forecast. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us. What are we looking for uh, for that region, Christy? Overall, this week, Sophie, is going to be an unsettled week right across the province now, specifically for Cache Creek. Uh, not much rain expected tomorrow, so good news there. But Thursday, that's when we could see 5 to 15 millimetres of rain for that area. Now, according to the BC River Forecast Centre, because of that, they could see moderate increases in river levels, not significant increases. So that is so, still some good news, unless the forecast changes and there becomes more rain in that area. But that's what we're looking at at this point. Now, keep in mind, there are still two other areas, the Quinell River as well as the middle, uh, the mid-Fraser River that is still under a warning. And when I come back, I'll show you when those areas can still expect some rainfall. All right. Thanks for that, Christy. Two of BC's top tourist destinations have now reopened to visitors, but good luck getting there. If you're planning on making the trip to Tofino and Euclid, you better pack your patience. Repair work has come to a standstill on a section of Highway 4 that was closed by rock slides back in January. And that's causing some major delays. Brad McLeod reports. It's a precarious stretch of road in the process of getting a safety upgrade. And the communities at the end of it, Tofino, Euclid, and the Tlaoquiet First Nation, have been patiently waiting. But that patience is running out. Can you tell me where anywhere else that you've seen that you've had to put up with this kind of inconvenience for over two years, or probably going to be another year? I realize that people are getting frustrated. It's an extremely complex section of highway. Despite the sign, a summer 2020 finish, 
not going to happen. There's been a pause in the construction while uh, we work on the geotechnical side with the contractor and making sure that they have a, a plan in place to do the blasting so it is done in a way that isn't going to disrupt people who are on the highway. There have been multiple slides and blasting mishaps, cutting off travel to the isolated areas for hours and even days like back in January. It is an important vital artery for our, our community. And for tourism. With the border closure, it's difficult to get that island tourism if the highway doesn't get complete on time. Compounding the frustration, a lack of communication from the province. We've been more than patient. Give us a bit of a timetable. Give us what you're, how you see your project unfolding here. The province says it will take weeks for a new blasting plan to be created, and major work will be on hold until then. Traffic is single alternating, with delays up to 30 minutes. So will the glow of the West Coast be dimmed by this last impression? I just really want to make sure that Kennedy Hill is not the reason why people may uh, be refrained from visiting the West Coast in general. We asked the province repeatedly for a new completion date, they didn't give us an answer in time for broadcast. Brad McLeod, Global News, Victoria. Another Vancouver strip club has been forced to shut down over a case of COVID. The number five orange on Main Street says it found out yesterday that a staff member who last worked on Canada Day tested positive for the virus. The club closed briefly but reopened today after it says health officials gave it the green light. Two staff members are in isolation, one with COVID, another as a precaution. Number five is already installed plexiglass to keep its dancers and customers apart, says the closure was for contact tracing data upgrades. Last month, Brandy's shut down temporarily after several people tested positive for COVID-19. And while there are no active community outbreaks, new cases and community exposure events, just like that one, continue to occur. We have 12 new cases today, bringing our total to 2,990. Thankfully, no new deaths, so that number remains at 183. 16 people are in hospital, four of them in ICU. 2,645 people are considered recovered, which leaves us with 162 active cases. Keith Baldry joins us with more now. Let's start with the outbreak at the number five orange, Keith. Uh, these nightclubs and show lounges, bars are a growing concern for health mm -hmm. officials. Indeed, I just got off the phone with Health Minister Adrian Dix, who tells me they are concerned. There are now three entertainment venues where there's been test positives for, for the virus. So there's growing concern amongst public health officials. Don't know exactly what the issue is going on there, but they're going to be taking a closer look at that particular entertainment sector to ensure we don't see future outbreaks at similar establishments going forward. All right, Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, today also did a special Facebook Live event, Keith. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of people clicked in to watch potential vaccines among the hot topics there. Yeah, a lot of ground was uh, covered here in the Rose Garden behind me. As a matter of fact, Richard Zussman uh, interviewed her and Health Minister Adrian Dix for about 40 minutes asking questions from our viewers and our Facebook uh, friends. And uh, as I say, a lot of ground was covered. Interestingly, though, she's, she's been pushing this issue for some time. She's really encouraging people to get out there outdoors and enjoy uh, the arts, uh, singing outside, not inside. And some encouraging news, she thinks, in her eyes when it comes to developing a vaccine. Canada is very active on that front. Here's Dr. Henry. I absolutely think we will be able to have even small numbers of people indoors if you have a large enough space with a large enough ventilation. I think that will be uh, 
perfectly fine and, and very therapeutic for people. There is over a hundred vaccine candidates and 25 of them are actually really in what we call phase one or phase, or phase two clinical trials. So um, lots of positive potential for vaccine. So a reminder, no briefing from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix until Thursday. We've been tracking about 10, 11, 12 cases a day. Hopefully that number continues to be the average going forward. And hopefully, fingers crossed, again, we go the next two days without seeing any deaths. Sophie? All right. Thanks for that, Keith. As some B.C. hotels slowly reopened, dozens of hotel workers rallied in Victoria today to demand the government give them the legal right to return to work. The workers argue that while the government helped businesses delay severance payouts that extended the amount of time they can temporarily lay off employees, there is no guarantee that workers can go back to their old jobs. Just a few weeks ago, Premier Horgan called on employers to do the right thing and make sure that they're keeping their workforce intact. Premier, we're here to tell you employers are not doing the right thing. Employers are already firing workers who are laid off, and they're using the pandemic as an excuse. More than 50,000 hotel workers were laid off when the industry shut down because of the pandemic. The union says the industry isn't committing to hiring them all back. The controversial switch to no-fault insurance will be debated in Victoria tomorrow, and in an 11th-hour effort, private insurers are warning the shift will give drivers even fewer choices in coverage. But as Richard Zussman reports, the province is forging ahead without the Insurance Bureau's advice. He wants to preserve it. I don't know why. It's part of the final stretch towards a massive overhaul at ICBC. MLAs debating the use of expert reports, just part of major changes set for the public insurer. I think it's quite evident that I have uh, significant concerns about this bill and the restrictions. The biggest change, up for debate Wednesday, will be the shift to a care-based model, better known as no-fault. The seismic shift in the way injury claims are dealt with limits the ability to sue while increasing benefits. But the Insurance Bureau of Canada, representing the private insurance companies, making a last-minute plea to amend the legislation, raising concerns that it creates coverage only available through ICBC. They're moving more of that from optional into basic, further limiting your ability to shop around to find savings and limiting consumer choice right here in this province. Currently, private insurers compete on the optional side of car insurance. The IBC sending an open letter to Premier John Horgan. The letter stating, BC's reforms will create new barriers that will further stifle competition and limit consumer choice and risk driving other insurers out of BC's auto insurance market entirely. I'm not uh clear on why uh, the Insurance Bureau of Canada uh, feels that they won't be able to participate. Just the opposite, there'll be new products uh, that they will be able to offer to British Columbians. EB quick to snap back at the claims, pointing to ongoing concerns in the strata insurance market as reasons not to allow open competition. But to hear them say they want to bring the solutions from the strata side to car insurance in BC when we actually have a plan uh, that will reduce premiums by 20% for British Columbians uh, is a bit bizarre. The switch to no fault is expected, if passed, to save that 20%, on average $400 a year, and is expected to be in place by next May. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. 
He taught his school-aged children to be independent and ride the bus alone, but he paid a huge price for it. The children's ministry said the free-range dad couldn't do it, and he started a three-year legal battle to clear his name and give the kids their freedom back. How it all ended in just over a minute. The cutest case to hit the Marine Mammal Rescue Center in a long time. That's coming up on the News Hour. And actor Tom Hanks has a message for people who won't wear a mask. His experience with COVID-19 later. Right now, though, the Vancouver single father at the center of a high-profile legal fight with the Ministry of Children and Family Development has won that battle. He got dragged into it three years ago for letting his school-aged children ride the bus alone. Aaron MacArthur reports on the free-range father's victory. I think it's a bit discouraging how much this did take. Bittersweet vindication. A Vancouver father at the center of a three-year fight with the Ministry of Children and Family Development has for now won the right to let his young kids ride the bus without parental supervision. The ministry has a very important role to play. I don't think it's in parenting decisions like this. This decision that the ministry uh, took and reinforced throughout the last uh, three years was entirely optional. They could have backed away from this. The father, who we won't name to comply with a publication ban on the children's names, says this is more than simply about riding a bus. After losing a court ruling, he appealed. The three judges agreed with the dad, saying the ministry overstepped, saying it may give advice and make recommendations to parents, but those recommendations aren't binding. I hope parents now uh, now know that if the ministry wants to tell them they have to do something, that order has to come from a judge. It can't come from a ministry uh, social worker. The MCFD previously has said, it completely supports building independence in kids and would be comfortable with children riding the bus alone if they're ready and capable. But when the ministry receives a child protection concern, we are legislatively obligated to assess it and respond in the best interests of the children. Parents groups saying the MCFD too often oversteps its mandate. You know, we've seen a increasing uh, conflict between parents and government government bodies and this is just a, a bit of a, a step back on that uh, power imbalance so that affirming that parents have rights. The MCFD plans to review the judge's decision. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The Vancouver Park Board is facing some criticism again tonight after delaying a decision about drinking in parks. The board was expected to vote on allowing alcohol consumption in some city parks but it ended up sending the issue back to city staff. Ted Chernecki shows us why. So what's the holdup on allowing alcohol in public parks in Vancouver? North Vancouver's been doing it for two weeks now with nothing but positive feedback, according to the city. But across the inlet, the delay can be attributed to one word, bureaucracy. In delaying the decision for further study, the board once again cited the need for provincial approval. Well, we have to wait until we can get the bylaw changed. Um, municipalities can... Um, change the alcohol rules, but the Park Board can't. But BC's Attorney General wrote a letter to Vancouver Council saying Section 73 of the Liquor Control and Licensing Act gives the authority to local governments to, via bylaw, designate a public place that is within their jurisdiction as a place where liquor may be consumed. Uh, you know, they're really being very, very overly cautious about this. Frankly, just allow 
drinking in the parks. We're all doing it. Everybody's doing it. We can look around here today and probably somebody drinking a beer over there, a glass of wine over there. Let's just get over that and move on. Ah, but the park board is not specifically named in that legislation, leading to this response. However, as the park board is a rather unique governing body and is neither a municipality nor a regional district, and the city of Vancouver does not have jurisdiction over parks and beaches, there is an identified gap in the legislation. Besides, the park board says the real delay is it wants more time to consider whether alcohol can be allowed, but only with food. I may already do it. So, yeah, we sometimes do like the charcuterie board and wine in the park and we try to be pretty respectful. I wouldn't say that we've ever been loud or obnoxious. It's a bad idea. Why is that? Well, well, because people start acting unruly. It also wants time to reconsider which parks would qualify. In two weeks, July 20th now, at the next regular park board meeting, they'll consider the reconsiderations. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Still ahead, family secrets exposed. The shocking claims in the explosive new book from Donald Trump's niece and how the White House is responding. Also tonight, trouble in the treetops. How B.C.'s majestic blue heron population took a major hit. It's a busy afternoon commute for Highway 1, but steady over the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge. You're a little bit slow just because of the lane shift at the Ling Creek Bridge through the construction zone between the Lillooet and Mountain Highway overpasses. Sussex Insurance are your auto plan experts for insurance renewals, changes, or other ICBC transactions all from home. Just visit sussexinsurance.com. In Global One above Highway 1 in North Vancouver, I'm Amber Belzer. Lower mainland pet owners are being warned about a troubling increase in coyote attacks on small pets. She's very lucky. She didn't get any eye damage. She might look fine now, but two-year-old Luna was brought to the Canada West Veterinary Hospital, semi-comatose and with a fractured skull, after a coyote attack late last month. Her owner says he was alerted to a commotion in the yard at 5 o'clock in the morning and rushed outside. And if I was probably about five, ten seconds later, I think she probably would have been dead. So I wrapped her up, put her in a towel, wrapped her up, and I beelined it over here. Thank God it was 5, 5 a.m. because, you know, I was hot, hot footing it from North yeah, Bend here. Aggressive coyote behavior is more common in the summer as the animals go after prey in urban areas to feed their young. Owners are being reminded to keep pets on a short leash or indoors. Tragedy struck a Tawasin heronry last month when several trees full of great blue heron nests toppled. The impact decimated the rookery, but as Linda Aylesworth reports, two surviving herons are being nursed back to health. It is a great blue heron, not young enough to be called a baby, but not old enough to fend for itself. It is a fledgling, and a lucky one at that. Two weeks ago, we got a report about um, a big tree falling down in a known um, rookery for herons. When wildlife rescue volunteers arrived at the site in Tawasin, it was immediately evident that the tree, its roots likely weakened by erosion due to deforestation, wasn't the only one that fell. And with the impact of that tree, other trees were impacted, pushing other nests onto the ground. So on arrival, they did find uh, a big mess of trees with nests destroyed, and they did unfortunately find about 12 uh, deceased herons. 
It was a devastating sight. Great blue herons are a vulnerable species, their population decreasing in BC. Any loss is significant. But there were a few survivors. Six herons came into us. Um, unfortunately, four of those herons were very um, critically injured, so they were humanely euthanized. That left two survivors. Emma has done her best to be a good surrogate mother to them. You want to make sure that they can't tell that you're a human because then they're going to think, oh, humans will feed me and they'll get used to humans and that can cause issues. She must teach them the lessons their parents didn't get the chance to finish. One has already mastered perching at the top of its enclosure and feeding. The other, a little younger, still needs help. So eventually we'll start um, chucking the fish to them or we call it biffing. Uh, and when, they, when we biff it, it kind of shows them the movement of the fish and then hopefully they'll go for it as well. Until it can grasp the concept of self-feeding, the younger one will have to stick around. But the older one could be ready for release back into the wild as soon as tomorrow. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Still ahead, COVID cases surging in the U.S. Frankly, we're running out of room. The struggle for Americans who want to get tested. Also tonight, the rescued sea otter pup and where they found it. The afternoon commute has eased off considerably on all the major routes. As you can see here at the Alex Fraser Bridge, we still have four lanes southbound and three northbound. Light volume for Highway 1 at the Portman as well. When you buy a lottery ticket or play at a casino in BC, our healthcare schools and community programs benefit BCLC. With every play, you're making BC even better. In Global One above Highway 91, I'm Amber Belzer. The U.S. is on the verge of another shocking COVID-19 milestone, approaching 3 million cases with more than 131,000 deaths. And with endless lineups for testing and hospitals getting overrun, all signs point to the virus raging out of control south of the border. In just this first week of July, a staggering new record number of infections, more than 380,000 cases of the coronavirus. Frankly, we're running out of room. Hospitals in hotspots are at a near breaking point. Texas, Florida, and Arizona seeing a surge in patients and a strain on ICU beds. The sickest who arrive may never leave. These patients, when they come in, if you don't hug your, your, your family member like right then, who's to say you're going to be able to hug them again? With new cases climbing in 37 states, Today, this scene across the country, Hector Salazar sleeping in his car overnight to be tested. In the last three days that I come in, I got the lines, like a 50 or 60 cars and no chance. The nation's largest testing site, Dodger Stadium, shut down for days. Lines formed at dawn in New Orleans, but tests ran out five minutes after doors opened. In Phoenix, where the temperature soared into the triple digits, it can take eight hours to get a test and 10 business days to get results. We ask for a little understanding and patience. Many of the infected are asymptomatic, like Atlanta's mayor, who has no idea where or how she caught COVID. I think it really speaks to how contagious this virus is, and we've taken all of the precautions that you can possibly take. As California soars above 275,000 cases, overwhelmed hospitals in the southern end of the state are moving patients seven hours away. 
It comes as vaccine maker Novavax says the government will pay them $1.6 billion to expedite 100 million doses of a COVID vaccine by early next year. Biotech company Regeneron is now beginning late-stage clinical trials of an antibody cocktail to prevent and treat the disease. But in Staten Island, 60-year-old Sylvester Flores beat COVID on his own, released today after three months in the hospital. 93 days is something we can't imagine, we can't believe it. We're baffled, but we're all here thanking God. Tonight for one family, a happy homecoming, while so many others are still in the fight of their lives. In Health Matters tonight, actor Tom Hanks is weighing in on the debate about wearing face masks. It disappoints me. Um, I don't get it. Uh, I come from a generation uh, that was still living uh, with the credo that there are there is a part that we can all play. Hank says his fellow Americans should do their part to stop the spread of COVID-19, and he has no respect for those who do not wear masks. The Academy Award-winning actor revealed in March that he and his wife, Rita Wilson, were diagnosed with the virus while filming a movie in Australia. Coming up, the White House responds to a bombshell book about the U.S. president, the shocking allegations from Donald Trump's niece, and why she's publishing them now. And later in sports, why some of the Whitecaps' best players won't be there when they return to play. Give a shout-out. Tag posts with hashtag BCHealthCareHeroes or email BCHealthCareHeroes at GlobalNews.ca to share with Global News. BC Healthcare Heroes in partnership with Fortis BC, caring for the BC communities where we live and work. Big thank you today to first responders in North Vancouver. Yes, the COVID thing at least has brought people together, which is the only positive thing I can think of. <laughs> Neighborhood residents collected donations from around the community for some treat bags that contained everything from baked goods to thank you cards. They were then dropped off at fire halls, police stations, the hospital, and a care home. Well, we think these people deserve recognition. They're, uh, they don't have any choice in the matter. They've come out, they've put themselves at risk in a number of ways, and COVID is probably the least of it. The crew that was here today actually had just returned from a structure fire, uh, pulled in, and the bags were being unloaded. Firefighters in general are, are humble. Uh, they, they sign up to serve the community. Uh, they don't expect, um, you know, community associations dropping off uh, thank you bags. But uh, I know at the end of the day, it, it really resonates and it, it does make a difference. Altogether, the community collected about $8,000 worth of goods that were donated to first responders. Yeah, weird how you end up at our thanks to all the work that they have done through this crisis and beyond. Goodie bags, well-deserved. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's stay on the North Shore and uh, check in with meteorologist Christy Gordon for a look at our forecast. And we talked earlier, Christy, about those uh, flood concerns in the interior. Yeah, so the overall pattern has remained unstable over the last little while. We've seen rain here and there. You certainly well know it, as do the people in the interior regions. I just want to give you a quick mention that as we look into next week, it looks like the overall pattern could change. We're getting inklings of it in the computer models that summer may make a comeback next week. That's still a ways off, so keep tuning back in. In the meantime, yes, flood watch still in effect. So look at these photos. This one from the Fraser River near Ladner. Michelle sending us this one. You can see how swollen it is right up to the 
the trees. And this one is the Quinell River, which is still under a warning. A number of detours still in effect. Uh, you can see a road there that has been completely barricaded off and people are having to go around because the water levels are so high. So it's the Quinell River as well as the Middle Fraser River that are still under the warning. And the reason for that is that there is still more moisture in the forecast for those regions. The river levels are expected to remain high and there's a chance that they could rise. Although overall, they're still expected to be stabilized. But there's the moisture pushing into those regions as well as our area. So tomorrow remains dry, but by tomorrow evening, we're right back into showers for our region. These areas, as including the Caribou and Central Interior, evening showers for you, mostly dry across southern BC, wet across the west and north parts of Vancouver Island, but for our area, should be dry through much of the day. But by evening hours, we're into showers once again, and that takes us into our Thursday as well. So you can see overall, we're certainly remaining unsettled. Hopefully next week really turns around. Now here's your central windows weather window. A spectacular sunset looking out over the Lake Country area. Thank you to Diana for that. Pretty nice patio you have there. I'd like to come by for a visit. All right, back to you guys. Lake Country bragging again is what that looks like. Beautiful though. Thanks, Christy. All right, one of the Marine Mammal Rescue Center's first guests since reopening is melting hearts at just 10 days old. Cold. <laughs> This is Joey getting pampered with a bath and a blow dry. The orphaned male sea otter pup is receiving intensive 24-7 care after he was discovered near Cayucat on northwestern Vancouver Island last week. Someone heard him crying out overnight and found a deceased adult sea otter nearby, presumed to be his mum. The newborn pup was rescued on Friday with help from fisheries and oceans and flown to Vancouver. We've checked his blood. He's definitely hypoglycemic. Um, certainly some degree of dehydration as well. Um, he's hypothermic, so he's cold. Um, his body temperature has, has um, dropped you know, below what we would we'd like to see. And certainly he has a degree of malnutrition as well. It's a very intensive neonatal care uh, sort of protocol for these guys. Joey. Joey was named as a tribute to a longtime supporter who helped to reopen the Vancouver Aquarium OceanWise facility after it was closed due to COVID-19. Don't you just want to snuggle him? Squire? <laughs> He's up next. There he is now. I'll talk about that in the commercial break with you. Um, the Whitecaps have not had any positive tests for COVID-19. However, five of their players, including... Lucas Cavallini will not be in the upcoming tournament in Orlando for various reasons. He, 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 he was emotional about not being with the team. We'll tell you who didn't go and why. Also coming up, spilling family secrets, the damning allegations in a new book from Donald Trump's niece. And ready to start up again, but a few white caps are going to be missing from the party, Squire. Yes, and some key ones, too. Some goal scorers you'd like to have around. Five Whitecaps, including Lucas Cavallini and Freddie Montero, are not going to be in Orlando for the MLS tournament. Cavallini said no because he lost two family members to COVID-19. One was his grandmother. Montero also cited family reasons. Tosant Ricketts had a pre-existing condition, so they couldn't let him go. Andy Rose's wife is about to give birth. And George Mukobilwa says he doesn't have a visa. Uh, what is very important for me to say, we were tested all time full negative, so we had not 
one single positive test, guys, throughout throughout the whole process. And also, to, uh, we just got the results of the test of yesterday. And again, everybody was a negative test. So um, because that's for us the most important message that uh, none of, no uh, none team member staff member is tested positive, and that all of our everybody who is here is 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 healthy. That's the good news. The bad is not everyone made the trip to Orlando. Five members of the Whitecaps roster, including Lucas Cavallini, Freddie Montero, Tosaint Ricketts, and Andy Rose, not in Florida, and won't be playing in the MLS's back tournament. You have to adapt, and I think the mindset and the the the, the quality that we have in people here, uh, I don't feel there's a lot of crybaby or people that are. Uh, oh, now we're going to change. No, we just go on with the business. It's not ideal, but but already, you know, there's a lot of things in the tournament that is that, that are not uh, ideal. For Mark Dos Santos, creating normalcy is his biggest challenge, and it won't be easy. Not when you're missing major parts of your offensive attack. Ricketts scored the game winner earlier this season, and the Caps win in L.A. and beat the Galaxy. Most importantly right now, though, is player safety especially after FC Dallas pulled out following 10 positive COVID tests. We created a bubble, a British Columbian bubble here at the 10th floor of the Dolphin Hotel. Um, so if you would enter the our floor, what is uh, exclusively, exclusively our floor, you will see uh, flags of British Columbia, of Canada, and uh, uh, some rules we hang up uh, that are... Uh, um, our rules here on our floor. So we are following still the protocols and uh, the com- uh, recommendations of, of Bonnie Henry here. Well, as far as we know, all the Canucks in town, and they are all in town now, are healthy right now, but the NHL doesn't really release that kind of information. Jake Vertanen, of course, gave team officials a bit of a scare and a reason to be unhappy when there were pictures on social media showing him at a local club. Canucks veteran Chris Tanev, who knows Vertanen well, says he thinks Vertanen has learned a lesson. It's obviously a tough situation when you're not in, technically in quarantine and, you, and you're allowed to, to go out. And whether he's at a club or, I mean, it, you're just as likely to get it going to the grocery store or, or doing things like that. So, I mean, it, it's, it's obviously tough. And I think he knows that um, that was obviously the wrong decision. But, I mean, I think him and, and guys seeing that now going forward will, will be smarter. Just Jake being Jake. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Squire. Still ahead, what sounds like a real page turner from Donald Trump's niece. A sneak peek at what's in her tell-all book before it hits the shelves. We want to thank all of you for emailing us your BC Healthcare Hero nominations. Keep them coming. Tonight's comes from Township of Langley Deputy Fire Chief Bruce Ferguson. And Bruce says Vince Ford is his BC Healthcare Hero. Vince has retired from a multi decade career with the BC Ambulance Service. During his tenure, he was always willing to go above and beyond for the betterment of the service. He would also volunteer countless hours to assist in training members of other agencies, particularly the fire service. Although Vince has retired from BCAS, he still has his hand in healthcare, now working part-time as a porter, helping patients at Langley Memorial Hospital. Vince's wife and daughter are also frontline workers. His wife is an ER nurse at a local hospital. His daughter is a police officer, making first response a way of life for the Ford family. So Vince, 
Bruce says you're his BC healthcare hero and you're ours too. We thank you and your family for all your hard work and dedication seeing us through this pandemic. And if you have a BC healthcare hero to nominate, send an email to bchealthcareheroes at globalnews.ca. Be sure to include a few pictures and a story about what makes them your hero. Now, a tell-all family memoir about U.S. President Donald Trump, written by his niece, is getting a lot of attention tonight. Mary Trump, who is a clinical psychologist, writes that her uncle is a textbook narcissist. And that's the least of her shocking claims. In her new tell-all book, President Trump's estranged niece, Mary Trump, minces no words explaining her motivations. I had to take Donald down, she writes, about why she gave the president's tax documents to the New York Times, adding, if he's afforded a second term, it would be the end of American democracy. The clinical psychologist insists her uncle meets all the criteria of a narcissist and in her book, obtained by NBC News, details a dysfunctional family with a dad who was so domineering, Fred Trump Sr., quote, perverted his son's perception of the world and damaged his ability to live in it. Mary Trump is the daughter of President Trump's older brother, Fred Jr., who she says was often mocked, even scorned by his father, who she writes once said, Donald is worth 10 of you. Fred Jr. later died of an alcohol-related illness. I had a brother, Fred, great guy, best-looking guy, but he had a problem. He had a problem with alcohol. Ms. Trump also claims the president's sister, a retired federal judge, said of his candidacy, he's a clown, this will never happen. And about the president's boasts about his brilliance? You know, I think I'm a totally brilliant human being. I think I'm the smartest person. Ms. Trump claims her uncle cheated on his SAT, paying a friend to take it for him, an allegation the White House calls completely false. Mary Trump contested her grandfather's will and blamed the president and other relatives for her not getting a larger inheritance. The White House tonight dismissing her book as written in Ms. Trump's own financial self-interest, saying the president's father was warm and very good to him. It's ridiculous, absurd allegations that have absolute no bearing in truth. Uh, have yet to see the book, but it is a book of falsehoods. Okay. Well, we'll have to see if, if we read it. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much for watching, everybody. Have a great night. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Good night to our viewers in California, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs>